It's amazing out today, isn't it? Well, this morning um, is going to be a bit different uh, than I think what our traditional or normal Sunday might look like in terms of uh, a message. Uh, generally, so this week Jonathan came to me and talked uh, a little bit about like, hey, like, I don't know if you knew you're speaking on Sunday. And to me, I said, I know now. That's awesome. You know, it was, this was on a Tuesday. So, uh, you know, I had plenty of time to prepare. And so when we were talking about like, hey, like, what do we want to uh, communicate this this week, uh, this morning. Ultimately, it came down to uh, just having such a greater sense of awe and wonder as to who God is and really what He's uh, what He's done, not only just in our lives but also in the world. And so, today, really, one of the things that I wanted to talk to us about was uh, the Word of God. And I think a lot of times when we we open up uh, the Bible or the Word, and we say like, okay, like this is this is amazing. I'm getting a lot of stuff out of it. I think there is a greater depth that ultimately God wants to give us in understanding where this even came from, right? I think I, I personally was thinking about this just in the last couple of weeks, like, man, I really want to understand even greater, like a greater sense of God, like, how did, how did this come to be? Like, how is it that you worked in the lives of so many men and women throughout history to give us what we have here today? In fact, um, when you read, uh, I'm just going to look it up right now, on our mission statement or our beliefs online, the very first statement of our beliefs here at Bluemont is, we believe the Bible is the inspired, the only infallible, authoritative word of God. Now that's a lot, right? Those are big words. Oftentimes it's like, man, that's like, what does that even mean? But really today, my hope is to break that down and to help us understand why everything came to be, how it came to be, and why it's so essential for us. Uh, so before we do that, I'm just going to pray. I believe that God wants to speak to us in a way that may be different this morning, but he wants to do something powerful here in this place. So God, we thank you so much just for who you are. God, we thank you that you are faithful. God, that your word endures 2,000 years after the last letter was even written, God that what we have today, God, is a, a great representation of who you are. God, that you are for us, you're not against us. And God, I pray that this morning you would speak through me. God, you would uh, be able to communicate your word clearly this morning. God, we say thank you, we love you, in your name, amen. All right, so first, let's look at 1 Peter 3.15. First Peter 3.15. It says this, Peter is speaking, he's saying, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, I think one of the big things here to, to see in that verse is that our faith, our hope, is reasonable. Right? It's not, um, one of the things oftentimes that we have a tendency to think is, you know, faith is just, it's, it's just believing. And, and there is a place for that. There is a place for just believing in who God is and what he says. But to go even deeper, God wants us to be uh, chewing on solid food, really, is what uh, the, Peter even says later on in that same uh, book. He wants us to be chewing on solid food. And so coming off of 
uh, milk and going to solid food often requires a depth of understanding, okay, like where, God, where did this come from? Understanding a greater, under, having a greater understanding of, God, what are you doing? How did you work throughout history to give us what we have in front of us? And so that's my hope this morning, um, that we, we want to have a reason for the hope that's in us. Uh, so let's look at some of the basics, okay? The, the Bible, let's dig into it. What are some of the basics of this book? Number one, it was written from 1400 B.C. to about 90 A.D. Uh, that's a span of about 1500 years. It was written on three different continents and three different languages. There's 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. They're written by 35-plus writers. I say 35-plus because there's a couple of different books that have multiple writers. There's a book that we actually don't know who the writer is. So uh, just a, a span of different writers. The background of these writers is incredibly diverse. So we have soldiers, priests, shepherds, tax collectors, uh, those are like IRS agents today. No, honestly, like when you think about it, IRS agents, nobody likes them. You know, like anybody who's like the IRS shows up to your house, you're like, oh, dang it. Like, man, I, this guy, like, I, I just don't, you know, I don't like him. Tax collectors were basically that, but even more corrupt. Like they would skim stuff off the top and take it for themselves. So it was, uh, it was pretty corrupt stuff. A lot of people, everybody hated tax collectors at that time. Kings, fishermen, doctors, so a whole range of diverse people who are writing what we have here today. Um, there's a wide variety of different topics, including history, law, prophecy, uh, poetry. We have different letters to different churches. Uh, the one thing I think that is amazing about this book, and this, this goes to uh, looking at every single religion throughout the entire world. No other religion has a book that gives specific names of people, places, historically verifiable events, all of these things. So when you read through the Word, you see, okay, like, if you didn't believe this to be true, go talk to this guy at this point. He's going to point you in the right direction. The Bible has that. It's not some esoteric philosophy, you know, just build your life upon this and everything is going to be great and working out and and, but really, it's, it's historically verifiable. There's geography. There's all sorts of different things that you can look at in here. Uh, the, the word that we have before us here, the Christian Old Testament, is called the Tanakh in Hebrew. So it's the Hebrew Bible. That was what uh, our Old Testament is made out of. It's just the Hebrew Bible that we took. And the New Testament is uh, what we have. It's the 27 books that I mentioned uh, earlier. So that's just some of the, the baseline level of, of everything. Uh, so how did it come to be? Today I'm really going to be focusing mostly on the New Testament, uh, everything from the point of Jesus on. The Old Testament, uh, truthfully, there's so much content regarding all of this. I mean, you're looking at a span of 1,500 years, so uh, we could be here for four hours. But for your sake, I'm going to condense this down to about 35 minutes at the most. So you're welcome. <laughs> all right, so what are some of the reasons why do we need the canon? A canon is kind of like a, a fancy word. Basically, it means the rule of faith. Canon means the rule of faith. So in other words, uh, think of a ruler, right? When you're measuring something, when you're measuring certain distances, if you're in construction, you use a ruler to determine what an inch is, right? Uh, there's like certain things out there that say an inch is like, however, you know, like kind of abstract, like, oh, it's the distance between your your knuckle and your second knuckle on your finger or something like that. It's like 
There are things that are subjective out there, but what we use to determine measurements of things are rulers. Right? Now imagine this. If I were to go on a construction site, and let's just say that I had a ruler that was wrong, or a tape measure that was wrong, right? My tape measure is different from some of the other dude's tape measures. Let's say I'm building a house. What's going to happen to that house if I'm one of the main guys building stuff? It's going to be jacked up. That's what Alessio says. And that is absolutely correct. So going back in church history, it was so essential that they had something that was a standard. This is, this is the rule of faith. These are trustworthy. This is something that we can stake our lives upon. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, one of the main reasons why there was a need for a canon was there was a pervasiveness of false teaching in the early church. Uh, specifically, when you look at the, the, and when I say early church, I mean pretty much from the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of Christ all the way through up until about, well, I mean forever. There still is pervasiveness of false teaching. But really, right to about the 4th century A.D. And so early on, there was a, a convenient, they, they basically convened, all of the church leaders spread throughout the whole world at that time, convened to determine, okay, what is going to be the rule of faith? So there were certain requirements, we're going to get into that in a minute, but there was such a pervasiveness of false teaching going on at the time. So one of those things was called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is this idea or this belief that essentially the spiritual is good, the material or physical is bad, right? There was this idea that anything physical is bad. That's not good. That's not spiritual. That's not from God. But that's not true, in fact. When you read throughout the Word, when you see in the New Testament plenty of examples where that's not the case, I mean, these were things that needed to be addressed, in fact, in the New Testament, we have a couple of specific examples in John, the Epistle of John, and in Colossians, where both Paul and John are addressing the specific issue of Gnosticism. And we're actually going to get to it in just a few minutes. So there needed to be a standard of truth, in other words, a ruler, uh, by which all other teaching was measured. The second thing, the second reason why we needed a canon was persecution. Persecution was rampant in the early church. Today, us sitting here is, in fact, an absolute miracle and a result of all of the persecution that happened back at that time. Um, for us, this is you know, a comfortable environment. We have air conditioning, right? It's awesome. We have projectors and sound equipment. We're able to communicate openly about who God is and what he's doing. Back at that time, they didn't have this luxury. So persecution was so rampant that you would literally be killed for even believing in who Jesus was. So the thing with persecution, though, is that they didn't just care about killing the person. They cared about destroying documents, too, right? If you, if you have a movement and you want to squash any kind of movement, you don't kill just the people, but you kill the documents. You kill the teaching that's going out into the world. So that was ultimately the goal of persecution, was to not just kill the people, but to kill all the documents, to destroy those documents. So that was one of the things... Uh, you know, and, and a lot of times, too, I think what happens is with people at that time, they didn't have something that they could stake their lives on. The people had the message. The people who were getting killed for the message, they knew what the message was, but ultimately they were trying to figure out, okay, is this document worth dying for or not? 
There were multiple documents out there. Which one is worth dying for, ultimately? So there was this need also to just give clarification. Okay, here are the documents that are inspired, authoritative, and inerrant. So uh, what are some of the books? What's the process look like for how all of this stuff comes together, right? What's the process for putting the Bible together? What books are included or excluded? The first rule is orthodoxy. Now you're like, dude, what? What are you talking about? Orthodox? That's a weird word. Orthodoxy, this is the basic definition, okay? It's always been understood as true, and it remains to be true. So, essentially, orthodoxy, in a simpler version, is right beliefs. What is the right beliefs or the right doctrine that we're staking our lives on? It's always been understood as true, and it remains to be true. Uh, Earlier I mentioned Gnosticism in uh, John and uh, Colossians, 1 John and Colossians. Here is a specific statement of orthodoxy that completely goes against those Gnostic beliefs. So let's take a look. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the what? Flesh. In the flesh. Right? That is a direct statement of orthodoxy addressing Gnosticism. Right? The idea is, in Gnosticism, flesh is bad, spirit's good. John is saying, Jesus Christ, God, came in the flesh. Let's go on. What else does he say? And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the what? Flesh. Is not of God. This is a direct statement of orthodoxy right here. Uh, Right beliefs. So there needed to be uh, congruence across all of the books that were included in terms of the right beliefs. Consistency. Number two, Catholicity. Catholicity. This is a, a weird word. I'm not talking about Catholic Church. Catholicity is just a word that means universal. Right? Universal acceptance is the idea. This universal acceptance of the word. So the definition, has this letter been accepted and approved in every church, everywhere, for all time? How diverse is it? Is it spread out? Has it been accepted in multiple locations? Does everybody believe it to be true? This is one of those tests, whether or not it was to be included or not. The last one is the apostolic origin and foundation. I'm using a lot of big words, so stay with me. Don't worry, I'll bring it back down. Uh, We've been going back, we've been in the 4th century here, talking about how everything came together. We're going to go back to the 1st century, uh, the early establishment of the church. Uh, Jesus was a rabbi, that was what he was called throughout Uh, the Gospels, he would send representatives, rabbis at that time would send representatives to do their work. There was a specific name that they were given. They were called the Sheliach. Sheliach is like a a singular term. In the plural, it was known as the Shalakim. It's like, dude, what are you you talking about right now? So yeah, one of those uh, Shalakim. This is what they would say. This is what the rabbi and the people of that time would say. The one sent by the rabbi is as the one who sent him. In other words, the Sheliak was empowered with the same authority as the master, as the rabbi. Deferred authority. 
Take a look at a couple of different verses that establish this. Number one, uh, Matthew 10, verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So Jesus is saying, hey, I'm sending you out to do my work. Whoever receives you is receiving me. Whoever receives me receives God. So my authority, I am passing it on to you. Take a look at another verse. in John 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is basically what was happening at that time. It was just the established a thing that was happening with rabbis, right? Rabbis would send out their workers to do the establishment. Now, the interesting thing about it was that there was a very specific thing in that uh, you could not, as a disciple or as a Sheliach, say, oh no, now I'm going to send you. So Jesus sent me, now I'm going to send you. No, that's not how it worked. The authority was very specific to them and to them alone. They had unique authority. And here, we can take a look at Ephesians 2, verse 19 and 20, just for this specific example. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. He's talking about the church at this time, the, the, the group of believers, okay? You are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Uh, earlier I mentioned a, a little analogy, right? If you're building a building, you want to have a tape measure that's accurate and congruent across the board. How many foundations can you have for a building? It's a trick question. It's one. Right? You can only have one foundation. I don't know if people in construction science here, but you can only have one foundation for a building. You can only have one foundation. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone itself. So, when, the, when everything was coming together, when all the writings at that time were being uh, compiled, and they're like, okay, what should be included and excluded? There needed to be some degree, or there needed to be an apostolic origin or foundation. So let's take a look at the breakdown of the New Testament, okay? Earlier I said there were uh, 27 different books in the New Testament. So here's the breakdown. The specific apostles appointed by Jesus were this. Matthew, John, Peter, and Paul, right? According to 1 Corinthians 15.8, Paul said that he was an apostle in due time. So Matthew, John, Peter, and Paul. Those four dudes, 21 of the 27 books in the New Testament were written by them. 21, that's a lot. Next, so let's go through. Mark, Mark was actually a follower of Jesus, but he was Peter's cohort and scribe who wrote the gospel from Peter's memoirs. So essentially, uh, a lot of people believe, many scholars actually believe that Mark is Peter's gospel. That it was ultimately from his uh, writings that ultimately the gospel of Mark came to be. The book of Luke and Acts, they were written by Luke, who was the companion of Paul. He wrote everything based on eyewitness accounts. Uh, Luke actually had Paul's blessing throughout the epistles in the, in the New Testament. So uh, this was all... Uh, established as being good. Luke uh, and Acts were written by Luke, and he had good uh, uh, blessing from Paul. The book of Hebrews, we don't know who the writer is. However, we do know that they were a close companion of uh, Paul. He was a close associate. Uh, here in Hebrews 13, verse 23, it says this, 
You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So the idea of Hebrews, it was either written by Paul himself or somebody who was in very close association with Paul. Timothy was essentially the student of Paul. So this, this word right here, the, the book of Hebrews has apostolic authorship in some capacity. And then the last two are Jude and James. Jude and James were the half-brothers of Jesus himself. So they were Jesus' brother. I mean, that's... I don't know about you, those 27, that's a pretty stinking good foundation. All of it. You have 21 of the 27 written by four apostles, and the others were people who were very directly connected to Christ himself in a very short span of time afterwards. All right. How you guys doing? Information overload, right? Well, okay, so really what we're going to do uh, after right now is I'm going to jump into some of the proof. Why is this God's word? Now we know how all of it was compiled, how it came to be. Let's look at why specifically this is God's word. We have a few different proofs. Number one, we have textual evidence. Textual evidence. There are 5,686 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament in existence today. A manuscript was essentially uh, a copy of an original. So those were essentially the manuscripts that we have. We can look back throughout all of history and see when those copies were based on the writing, the style, the time period, all of it. So we can essentially look back. And so, In fact, uh, I talked to Brandon earlier this week, and he was like, you know, it's kind of like a game of telephone. And when you think about like, the game of telephone, right, one person starts a message, then they tell another person, then they tell another person, then they tell another person. And by the time you get to the end, you think, wow, like, there's no possible way that that person is going to get what the first person had. Does that make sense? Have you guys ever played that game? Right? It's like, wow, there's no way. The interesting thing about this is that we have the message passed down throughout all of time. So it's not really a traditional game of telephone. It's like, hey, what did you say? 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 So you're getting all of the information from all of these different sources. So it's not just like one person going all the way down the line and then we have something completely different. We have complete confidence that what we have here in God's word is legitimate, that it is actually true, and that it was written almost exactly as we have it by the original authors, by the original writers. In fact, take a look at this. We have a little chart. I don't know if you guys can see this really well. Uh, let me just read it off real quick. The top four uh, lines basically give different uh, writings throughout history. Okay, So the first one, we have Plato, we have Caesar, Aristotle, uh, Homer, the Iliad. You might have read that in high school. Um, but Plato's The Republic is... Really interesting because a lot of that is used today in college classrooms. If anyone has ever taken a philosophy course in college, you are probably likely to read Plato's Republic, The Republic. So here are all the writings when they were written. Uh, the, the third column is the earliest copy. So in other words, here's the first thing that was written by the, the hand of the person who authored it. Then the next copy, okay? The time span between the original copy and the next one is in the next column. So between the original copy of Plato's Republic, or the, the original, and the earliest copy, there's 1,200 years. That's, 
I mean, think about this. Um, we, you know, here we have uh, American English, I'll call it. Do you know how old Old English is? Colin knows this. What is it? 1,200 years old, right? Have you ever tried reading Old English? It is a foreign language. Like, it is impossible for us, like, reading it, we'd be like, wait, what? Like, what are you... This doesn't make any sense. So it's like two completely different languages uh, being written right there. 1,200 years span between those copies. Caesar, 1,000 years. There's only 10 copies of it out there, okay? Aristotle, 1,400 years between the original and the copy. There's 193 copies of uh, what he wrote back then. Of the Iliad, there's 643 copies. When you have a certain uh, amount of copies, you can see the variance between all of the different copies. Uh, there's 95% agreement between all of those different manuscripts that were written for Homer's Iliad. The New Testament, 5,686. It's not even close in comparison, okay? Less than 100 years between the original and the copies. When looking at the con consistency across the board, there's 99.5% consistency from the earliest manuscripts to some of the latest manuscripts. 99.5%. And those 0.5% have no bearing on any of the theology. It's just words that were dropped or uh, congruences, things that just changed as the language changed. So we have very firm belief and understanding that what we have here in God's word as, is as it was back then at that time. We have confidence, absolute confidence in it. You guys follow? Cool. All right, let's move on. The next thing is the historical accounts. We have historical accounts. Uh, these are extra-biblical accounts is what they're called. They're from historians of that time who were writing regarding uh, the things that were happening in that time period. Here's a specific example. There's a historian. He was a Jewish historian by the name of Flavius Josephus. It's a sweet name, right? Yeah, that's... Um, honey, I think we should name our next child Flavius. <laughs> Flavius Joseph. This guy was a non-Christian, okay? He wasn't a believer. He did not follow uh, Christianity. But here's a specific excerpt from what he wrote. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other things concerning him. And the tribe of the Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. This was written about 50 years after all the events happened. But from him, this is, this is a guy who has no skin in the game, right? A lot of times we think, like, these writers were just deluded. They were believing what it was. This guy was a non-Christian. He had nothing to gain from creating or discussing this historical account. And he is saying basically what the gospel says. All of it. This guy, Jesus, he wasn't even a man, if we can even call him that. We don't even know, but he did so many incredible things. So 
So there are extra biblical accounts, historical accounts from people who uh, knew exactly what was happening at that time. The next one is archaeology. I'm not talking about like Indiana Jones here, so like, man, let's, let's just go find uh, the Holy Grail or the, the Ark of the Covenant, right? No, like there was not lightning shooting out of people's eyeballs. and that, that, that is not a historical account, okay? Let me just tell you. There are specific things in archaeology, though, that do verify all the things that we see here in the Bible. Uh, the story of Jericho. Here's a, a really cool example. Jericho happened uh, you know, thousands of years ago, 3,500 years ago, was the actual historical account. In the Bible, it gives a historical account of uh, the people for seven days, or for six days, I should say, walking around the city once, shouting, like, okay, we're going to take the city, God, yeah, like, then on the seventh day, they walked around the city seven times, gave a loud shout, trumpet blared, and the walls collapsed. And then they just went in and, and got the city and burned it to the ground, essentially. But here's the interesting thing. This was not actually established as uh, archaeological truth until about 150 to 200 years ago. It's crazy. Everybody was like, no, that's just fiction. There's no way. That's not real. So they found the historical city of Jericho, they discovered the walls, how they fell, matched the, exactly the biblical account. They went through, found that the city itself, uh, so it was right around the time of harvest when all of this happened, they found grain that was actually preserved still in the pots. And so at that time, the military strategy was to put a siege on a city. So they would prevent anything from coming into the city. So if a city was under siege for a long time, there would be no food basically remaining. Everything would be completely gone because everybody's consuming it and then the city would fall, right? They would have to go outside to get the food and the resources that they need to continue living. That's not what happened. They found that the pots were completely full, ceramic pots. They found that there were, uh, that all of them were actually burned. The whole city had a massive fire breakout in it that destroyed everything. Now what's interesting is that in the, the, the account of Joseph, uh, the house of Rahab, who was the one who helped the Israelites at that time, God said, I'm going to protect you. I'm not going to have any harm against you or your household. You'll be fine. They discovered houses that fit on the wall in the same location as described in the biblical account that had no fire damage whatsoever at that time. Absolutely no fire damage. So, historically, we have that incredibly strong archaeological evidence. Another example, uh, the Hittites. You're like, wait, say what? what? Who's the Hittites? The Hittites. The Hittites were a group, a nation of people who uh, are mentioned in numerous places throughout the Old Testament. And archaeologists can never find anything relating to the Hittites, and they're saying, oh, that's all fake, you know, until in the last 150 years, they found the Hittite capital that described absolutely everything verbatim. And so now it's historical fact that the Hittites existed. It's amazing. In fact, uh, Nelson Gluick, a Jewish archaeologist, says this, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Nothing in archaeology has ever controverted a biblical account or biblical reference. It's amazing. And lastly, we have prophecies. So we're going to talk about Christ now. Uh, over 300, if you look throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament was written in a, in a span between 1400 to about 400 B.C. Remember, time goes backwards when you get to the B.C.s. Uh, so it was written over a span of about 1,000 years. 
And in those accounts, there are numerous, numerous prophecies regarding who Christ was. His character, his nature, the things, the specific things that would happen to him. Uh, let's just take a look really at uh, a specific example here. Uh, Peter Stoner, he's a mathematics professor. He's my guy. I'm a math guy, so he's, a, he's my guy. He, uh, he gave his students a probability question. There was a very specific prophecy that he gave in the Old Testament. It says that Jesus, uh, Jesus was going to be uh, betrayed for 300 shekels of silver. So he went and gave his probability students a question and said, I want you to figure out the probability of this taking place randomly. Go figure it out. So he gave his students this, and then also a few other ones. So the, the odds of somebody fulfilling that specific prophecy were absolutely astronomical, but then they calculated the odds of someone just f- being able to accomplish eight, just eight random prophecies in the Old Testament. And here's what they ultimately came to. The odds are one out of ten to the 21st power. So you're like, dude, that makes no, like I have no idea what number that looks like. Let's, uh, let's represent this in a much more easy way. Take, you know those half dollars, 50 cent pieces, right? You take a 50 cent piece, lay it down on the ground. You stack those 120 feet high, covering the entire earth. Okay, I'm not done yet. Randomly pick any one of those. Not on the surface, they can be buried. Pick a random one, mark an X on one side, bury it. The odds of Jesus doing that are the same as you picking it out blindfolded on the first try. That's a little insane. I don't know about you, but I, I have a hard time flipping a coin and la- getting it to land on heads ten times in a row, but this like way outweighs it. It's, uh, it's pretty insane, honestly, when you look at it. So, so that is uh, something that's so true. When you look throughout the Old Testament, you see all of these prophecies lining up to Jesus and who he was. Over 300 of them were fulfilled in Jesus. 300. There is no way that could be random. Ultimately, when you get to it, God is who he says he is. He established Christ as God. He is God. And ultimately, we have a very good account throughout the entire Bible of just who Jesus was and and that he was indeed who he claimed to be. So any doubters out there about that? I'm just kidding. I want to do this really quick. I want to look at Hebrews 4.12. This is uh, such a critical verse for us to understand. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between the soul and spirit, between the joints and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. That this book is not just a book. It's not just a historical account. It's not just claiming that all of these things happened. Here's the history. It's not a history book. This book is powerful. It is God's living word. And when we get into it, we understand, God, you can speak to me right now through this. It does something in us that's so powerful. So I want us to understand that this is not just a a book. That ultimately, God established, he, he preserved his word throughout all of history. What we have today, we have confidence in that it was exactly the account as it was laid out in that time period. And ultimately, it gives us such a greater sense of awe and want, God, how did you do this? How are you able to, to put all of this stuff together? And honestly, like for me, 
sometimes I have a hard time thinking like, you know, I, I try to think rationally about a lot of things, but sometimes there are things that go beyond even my rationale. Like, I don't understand how it's possible that all this came to be as it is, but I believe God. Like, you have something so much greater in this book. It's not just a book. It's something for, for every single one of us to live by, uh, and it's powerful. And uh, so that's, you know, I, th- I think that's so true for, for us, too, as we uh, close out. Before I close, actually, I, I do have a question. Um, I got a couple minutes. Does anybody have any questions? We get to the summer, it's a little bit more relaxed. I, I do want to open it up just for maybe two questions. If anybody has any questions about this. I'll give you a second to think. What about all the contradictions in the Bible? Show me. <laughs> that is actually uh, a tactic that I've used before. Um, I've had discussions with people. One of the, uh, let me just point this out real quick. Uh, there's an area of uh, study, it's called apologetics. Basically, it's, you're not apologizing. It's in the word, but it's, it's like, I'm so sorry, you know, all the time. No, that's not, that's not what apologetics is, okay? It's defending your faith, essentially. That's really what we're doing here, is just, it's apologetics to a degree. So, I hear that complaint a lot. Actually, like, man, the Bible is just so contradictory to itself. And usually, if I have, you know, my Bible on me, I'll be like, oh, like, where? Can you show me? Usually, the idea of a contradiction is really not uh, actually a contradiction. It's taking things out of context, mostly. Um, But I am convinced there are areas in this book that have, okay, maybe some numbers, maybe, uh, off a little bit. So, like, 20,000 here or 30,000 there, they may be counting different things, but the, for the most part, there are no theological, doctrinal contradictions throughout the entire Bible at all. Absolutely. Does that answer your question, Jonathan? It does. Thank you. Yes, Pastor Jonathan. Good. You know, we want to squash all worries here. Yeah. One more. Anybody else? Yeah, Elaine. Kind of amazing, right? Their impression uh, throughout the Old Testament, so the, the Bible that, sh- that Elaine is referring to is the, the Tanakh, or what I mentioned earlier, it's the Hebrew Bible, okay? So they, me- they had it pretty much completely memorized. Their understanding of Scripture, which again was false, they, they were so blinded by rules, regulations, this is how you follow God, that they didn't ultimately see the purpose behind it. And at at the same time, too, um, they had an idea of Christ coming in a different way than he actually did. They were under the impression that Jesus was going to come as a ruling king and conquer physically by force and take by force uh, and overthrow, basically, the Roman Empire. That was their idea of who Jesus was. And that, you know... it's like, okay, if you read through the Old Testament, you could see where they would get that, but the problem is that they were so closed off and that this is the very nature that they were so convinced that that was how it was that they blinded themselves off to actually who Jesus was. They were convinced, like, there's no way that you are who you say you are. And part of it, too, is uh, there was a real pride issue 
in a lot of the Pharisees. They believed, just without a shadow of a doubt, like, we have it all together, you people don't have anything, you don't know anything, and Jesus wasn't in their mold. He didn't fit the mold of a Pharisee. He often went against them. Uh, he did things that really riled them up, if you read throughout the Gospels. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, one more. I'll do one more. I like answering questions. One more. Anyone else? All right. No more. Yeah. Oh, man, you got me right after the cutoff, man. (laughs) Yeah, so the Old Testament, um, at around 400 B.C., so 400 years before Christ came, uh, the Old Testament was established as the Tanakh. And what we actually have is uh, it was assembled by Ezra and Nehemiah at that time. It was, those are two Old Testament uh, characters that you see actually in the Old Testament. It was assembled by them. Um, Jesus himself actually made reference to the Old Testament that all of the law and the prophets are fulfilled in him. And that encapsulates the entire Old Testament. So if we have an establishment that what Jesus said is true, then we have an establishment going back even further about the Old Testament. Um, Another thing that's very interesting in the book of Matthew, um, Matthew is actually writing to uh, Jews at the time. And uh, there's, at around 400 B.C., so there was the, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. It was translated into Greek at about 300 B.C., so about 100 years after that, into what's known as the Septuagint. That's the the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Okay, So the interesting thing about Jesus in the book of Matthew, you would think that Matthew would be quoting the Hebrew Bible because he's speaking to Jews primarily. But actually in the book of Matthew, 90% of the uh, translation or 90% of the references that he gives Jesus as making were from the Septuagint, from the Greek translation. So it wasn't even, 10% was from uh, the Tanakh. So that right there is kind of interesting in itself, that it's like, hey, like, Jesus is saying, even this, a translation of the Hebrew Bible, is God's word. Yeah. All right. We're going to close out. Uh, Let me pray real quick, and then uh, Elaine is going to come up. All right, God, thank you so much for who you are. God, we know that uh, throughout the course of history, God, you have done amazing works in your church and preserving your word, God, and, and what we have before us. God, we know with, that, with complete confidence that everything in it is from you, it's for you, it's by you, God. We thank you so much for that. Uh, God, I pray that as we leave this place, as we dig into your word, you just give us a greater sense of awe and wonder as to who you are. Uh, God, your, your faithfulness towards us, God, that Uh, as I even spoke of that verse in Hebrews 4.12, God, that uh, your word would speak to us, God, that it would uh, divide, God, that it is alive and powerful. It would divide everything that's in us and and speak to us in a real way. Uh, God, we thank you. We love you. In your name, amen.